Let's pray together. We'll seek the Lord's blessing uh, for the preaching and the hearing of his word. Father, we are grateful that in your kind providence you have given us your word and caused it to be written down, that we can study it and learn it and come to an agreement through your spirit together what, what it means and, and what, how you are teaching and instructing your church, the very means by which our Lord continues to govern and, and rule his people as our faithful prophet, priest, and king. We, we thank you in his name. We ask now for understanding together, both as individual men and women, but also as a corporate body seeking to do your will. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And take your seat and turn once again to the book of Acts. This is, if you're a, a guest with us, this is our third week here in the same text, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And in this text, we find the account of the calling of the first deacons in the New Testament church. Here you have a growing, burgeoning church just filled with the Spirit of God and growing rapidly. Some scholars estimate that by this point in in time, there were about 5,000 members. Well, with 5,000 members, it's not hard to imagine, there can be some logistical difficulties. There are problems that emerge and so what we've looked at is this, this office of deacon, the diaconate, the assembly of, of a group of men to serve in the local church. How did this come about and, and why? It's a joyful occasion for us as a church body preparing to ordain a new deacon uh, this afternoon uh, immediately following our service. And we can easily take for granted sometimes the, the men themselves and their families as they serve, but we can also take for granted how the necessities within our church are handled, things that are unseen, uh, things that go on uh, behind the veil, as it were, that maybe you don't see or don't even have a cause necessarily to pay attention to, and we take those things for granted. We can take for granted the question of, of why, as a church, we ought to have deacons. Why are they not only profitable for us, but necessary for us as a church to fulfill the Great Commission? We take for granted even more that this is an expression of the Lord Jesus Christ's love for his church. And that is, that is a theological truth that, that we have to come back to again and again and anchor ourselves as we think about deacons, anchor ourselves in that theological truth that Christ loves his church. You know, he is not some absentee landlord who's gone off and left his house to, to just a, a provide for itself. Our Lord is the one who still is the giver of gifts. He is the one who is the ruler of his church, the governor, and tells us and instructs us through his word how we ought to conduct ourselves. So over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at, at two profound questions. We've, we've looked at the question first of, of why were deacons appointed? And we looked at some of the, the, the background here in the text and, and why is it that deacons were necessary? And then we looked at what were the roles? What did they accomplish? What were they tasked to do within the church? And as we look today at the, at the who question, you know, who ought to be appointed as a deacon? What are the qualifications for those men who serve in the diaconate? We shouldn't separate that question from those first two questions. Why do we have deacons to begin with? What role do they serve? Because there's, a, there's an error, kind of that proverbial both sides of the ditch, Right? There's an error on one side that we can take the qualifications and, and interpret them in such a wooden way and, and such a scrupulous way that really no ordinary man would ever qualify for the office of deacon. 
But on the other hand, we can minimize those qualifications or ignore them altogether and have men who would be unprofitable servants among us because we did not take seriously the instruction that scriptures give to us. So I'm going to read two texts back to back. I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And if you want to go ahead and turn and put a finger there in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 and following. So here, think in mind as, as, we, as, as we read the text, have those two questions in, in your mind. Why did the apostles urge the church to appoint deacons for herself? And what were those deacons intended to accomplish? So as I read the text, have those two questions in your mind. Why were these men chosen? Why were they necessitated? And what were they expected to do? What was the benefit that should accrue to the entire body because they were obedient to the word of God and called these men to the office of deacon? So here now, this is the word of God. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Then the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see here in the text a threefold qualification. Very briefly, these are general summary terms. These are men who are to be of good repute, men who are full of the Spirit, and men full of wisdom. I'm going to submit to you that as we read in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus a, a more comprehensive list, those same three mark categories of qualifications. And I'll, and I'll look at those here later in the sermon. But these are not a new list. This is an expansion of the same list that the apostles had originally given to the people of God. So I'm going to begin in verse 8 and read through the end of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here also, this is the word of God, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I want to lay out a little bit where we're going to go in in the sermon today. I'm going to spend a few minutes, and I don't ordinarily do this, but I'm going to spend a few minutes reviewing the last two sermons. I don't normally spend much time reviewing sermons, but I think it's vitally important that we have anchored firmly in our minds these questions of of why and what. Why are deacons necessary for the ministry of a church? And what are those deacons supposed to do? Because if we lose sight of that, we're not going to interpret interpret the qualifications correctly or adequately. So I'm going to do a brief review. Then we'll ask the question, who? So we've looked at the why question, the what question, now who? Who should serve? And not only as we think about the ordination of J. Michael today, but in the future, hopefully over the next year or so, as as God raises up other men among us to serve in these capacities, what ought we to look for as a congregation? And then finally, we're going to meditate upon a promise that's given here in 1 Timothy 3 to those who serve well. There's a promise here from the Lord Jesus, not only to that particular man, but to a congregation. And so we'll consider those together. So let's first of all, and again, briefly, I want to review what we looked at in the last couple of weeks. Why are deacons necessary? Why is this a vital aspect of the ministry of the local church? And, and first of all, deacons serve as a testimony of our corporate commitment to the Word of God. You'll recall that the apostles were not inventing things. As, the, as this problem arose, this murmuring came to their ears, almost like a smell that wafted up to them about this complaint. You had, you had ethnic difficulties. You had Hebrew-speaking Jews, and you had Greek-speaking Jews, and it was more than just a language difficulty. There were cultural implications there. There were deep historical divides that threatened, at this very point in the early life of the church, to split it, and to split it along those ethnic lines. And the apostles recognized that difficulty, and they, not being innovators, not seeking to come up with their own novel idea by which they could solve this problem, they looked to the Word of God itself. And they reached back into the testimony of Moses when Jethro, his own father-in-law, came to him and advised him, what you're doing is not good. From sunup to sundown, you're hearing every single dispute among all the people. Moses, you need to delegate other men who can help with that and you need to focus your time and attention on teaching people the rules, the laws, the statutes of God, so that here's a novel idea. If they know the word of God, they might be able to solve their own problems. The burden shouldn't be all on your shoulders. And the apostles recognized that, and in their humility said, we've got to have some help. So deacons testify to the whole world that we are committed to the word of God, that we want to do things according to the template, according to the plan that God has given to us. But secondly, deacons serve as a testimony of our weakness, of our limitations. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but who who has been tempted to believe the lie that you can do it all? That you can do everything? That you really can be the jack of all trades? That you really can do everything and be in every place at one time? This isn't true. And having deacons testifies to that fact, that no pastor has all of the resources in time or gifts or energy to fill the needs of a congregation. No one does. 
there's a necessity of having a, a faithful, able body of men to help with those tasks. Thirdly, deacons help us focus our ministry more carefully and more fully. That way there's a division of labor where the the ministers, the pastors, the elders are able to focus more diligently on praying and preaching and the deacons can handle those physical necessities that are necessary and yet ought not to distract those whom God has called to teach and preach. And fourthly, deacons are necessary. They're vital to the mission of the local church because God is in fact concerned with both soul and body. God is concerned with our souls for eternity, but he's also concerned with the needs of our bodies. And deacons are the instrument by which God has given to his church. So let's, let's oversee those things. Let's make sure that we don't have people with needs in our congregation who are falling through the cracks, so to speak. Deacons can be a set of eyes and ears that a pastor just may not be able to see. And, and I used the illustration last week. Sometimes it's kind of like in your own homes. Dads, how many times has your wife come to you and said, this is an issue with the kids or with this particular child? I didn't see that. Of course you didn't. You don't have the same eyes that she does. But also you may not have had the opportunity that she has had in a similar way. Deacons can see things in the life of a church, in the needs of a family that a pastor may overlook. And God is concerned about all the needs being met. So that's that's in summary form. Again, I spent a full sermon on that, but that's, that's the summary form of the why. Why do we have these guys? But there's another question. What is the role? And thinking about the calling of those first deacons in, in a, this was a pressure cooker environment. I mean, you had, you had people who were accusing others of neglecting widows in the daily distribution of food. That's quite the accusation. And, and the way that the apostles responded tells us that there was some merit. They didn't handle it correctly, but there was merit in the complaint itself. This is a serious matter. And it was emotionally charged. There was all kinds of opportunity for strife, for discord, for difficulty. This was yet another form of spiritual attack, attack that was coming upon the church. And so the deacons were brought to bear upon this situation to help solve those particular issues. The the language in Acts chapter 6 is that they were to serve tables, but that's not the, the full measure of it. It was just to address the physical needs. In that particular circumstance, there were widows who needed food to be delivered to them on a daily basis. And that, that was quite the logistical enterprise, isn't it? To handle that sort of thing. But that's, those tasks are not confined. That was their particular place, their particular needs. So a church who has a bunch of, of, of young families and young children will have a different set of needs than a congregation that's primarily elderly or shut in. And so a church has to be wise in terms of how those deacons are used and what they do. And there's, there's a liberty from church to church to organize those men according to the needs. So the role of a deacon is, is to take care of those physical necessities, to oversee them, not to be the lone workers, but to oversee that work. Secondly, deacons are here to promote unity in the body. I mean, imagine... You don't have to have a a vivid imagination to understand what kinds of of difficulties would be present in such a situation that someone felt like their own mother was being neglected in in the, the very basic necessities. And then you add to that maybe a linguistic and ethnic suspicion 
of one another. You needed wise men who were able to enter into that, wade into that situation, maybe even a quagmire, and find ways for peace. Be able to unify God's people. Thirdly, it becomes a wise use. What's the role of deacons? Wisely to help implement the authority, the rightful authority of the church. Christ has given to his, to his pastors, to his teachers, the authority to proclaim his word and to rule according to that. And the deacons have the opportunity to, to exercise that authority, to help implement that authority within the life of a church. And lastly, and related to that, is to promote the, the preaching, the teaching, and the praying priority of the church by freeing up the pastors to focus on those spiritual matters rather than being distracted with the physical necessities. So as we think about the question of who, and that's where we'll spend the bulk of the time this morning, the question of the who has to be understood in that context. If, if, we, if we come to the answer of, of, of who, and we answer with, well, Mr. Mr. John Q. Smith, okay? He's, he, he checks the boxes in terms of a, of a wooden understanding of the qualifications, but is he able to accomplish these kinds of purposes? Is he able to be the kind of man who gains and, and finds ways of peace? Is he the kind of man who, who humbly serves others and leads other men and women to serve alongside him? Is he the kind of man who says, I, I can do it all, I don't need any help? Or is he the kind of man who's humble enough to say, I, I, I'm not able to do everything. We need others to help. So you see, as we think about the who question, let's, let's filter that. Let's look through the lens of the why we have them and the what function ought they to do. So let's now look at the, the who question. Who should serve in the office of deacon? We saw again in Acts chapter 6, very briefly, men of good reputation, men who are full of the Spirit, and men who are full of wisdom. Well, this parallels, in fact, is expanded upon by Paul in 1 Timothy 3. As I read those a few moments ago, Paul begins with this statement, deacons likewise. This instruction on deacons didn't just come out of nowhere. Paul's not writing a letter and says, oh, I need to make a footnote or a side trail, a different topic, and deal with deacons. No, what he's saying is this is a necessary component of what I've already been teaching you. Now, what has he been teaching them? Look down at verse 14. Paul has left this young man, Timothy, as a pastor in a place called Ephesus, an ancient Roman city that was marked by some of the same cultural features that, that we know very well. Rampant immorality, all kinds of, of pagan worship, false gods everywhere, money is king, false worship is queen, and Paul has left this young man to minister in that context, in that kind of place. And, and he says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. Paul plans, he wants to come in person and visit Ephesus and encourage Timothy. He said, but here's what happens. If I'm delayed, what I need to tell you can't wait. You need to know how to structure and organize the church of the living God. And Paul calls this here. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar 
and buttress of the truth. See, Christ has vested his local churches with such authority, with such glory, that they are considered by him to be a pillar, a buttress of his own truth. This is, we are in an embassy in which the, 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 the instructions, the commands of our king are proclaimed. And Paul is saying deacons are necessary to this kind of order. In order for church to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth that Christ intends for us to be, deacons are a necessary component of that. So we don't just parachute into this text. We have to understand it in light of all that's gone around it. And then you know what happens in chapter 4? Paul goes on and gives very detailed instruction to Timothy about what he ought to prioritize in his teaching and preaching. So here, sandwiched between the qualifications for elders and detailed instructions to Timothy on what his pastoral duties ought to be, Paul gives instructions on deacons. See, this isn't a new topic. Paul isn't changing the subject and then coming back. He's continuing a train of thought. And it's an amazing statement to say that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. He's using architectural language. I mean, you know what a pillar is. It holds up a wall, and a buttress would keep the outside walls from expanding or falling out keep the roof from pressing out upon the walls. And so the deacon qualifications are are coming into that context. And all through the pastoral epistles, through 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul is repeatedly warning these young men and the churches that they serve against, he uses terms like swerving, rejecting, departing, straying from, wandering, making shipwreck. And he recognizes the stakes are very, very high. I mean, does anyone doubt that? I don't think I have to even persuade you of that, that morally, spiritually, the stakes are high. You all know people who have made shipwreck of their lives. You all do. You all know people who have wandered away from the faith, who once made a sure profession of faith, or what seemed to be, and they've wandered away into all kinds of selfishness and immorality. You know these people. So Paul recognizes the stakes are high and deacons have a vital role in the church being the pillar and ground of the truth. He says deacons likewise must be, in verse 8 of of 1 Timothy 3, deacons likewise must be. I want to note here something important for us to to grab hold of. As, As we think about these qualifications, have these two words in your mind parallel together, must and ought must and ought. Every, every Christian ought to be these things. There's no exceptions. Every mature follower of Christ ought to be characterized in these ways. But an officer in the church of Jesus Christ, a deacon or a pastor, must be. So have those two words, ought and must. Every mature Christian ought to have these things true of them. For deacons and pastors, it must be so. And again, there are three divisions. We, we look at first their character. First and foremost, with a deacon, what is of paramount importance to the church is the man's character. What kind of man is he? And then secondly, what is the content of his faith? What does he believe? And thirdly, what skill does he have? What skill? So character, content, and skill. 
And, and again, this, this perfectly matches, I think, the division that we see in Acts chapter 6. Men of good reputation, well, that's their character. Men who are full of the Spirit, that's their faith, that's the content of their faith. Men who are full of wisdom, that speaks to their skill. Let's think about Paul's list here with respect to character. He first says deacons must be dignified. Must be dignified. And by this term, he simply means sober-minded. These are honorable men. This is not a foolish man. That doesn't mean he never cracks a joke. It doesn't mean he's, he can't laugh. It doesn't mean that he doesn't enjoy the good gifts that God has given to him. But is he a, overall in his life, is his, is his life marked by a sense of sobriety, a sense of seriousness? Or is this a man who's, who's engaged his mind and his time in petty things? Next, he, spoke, he said he's not to be double-tongued. And, and notice that many of the character qualifications here, Paul states in the negative. These are things a man ought not to be. Not double-tongued. means he's not devious in his speech. He doesn't tell one party one thing and another party something else. Imagine, if you will, the situation in Acts chapter 6. Those who are saying, our widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And not only that, we think it's because they're not Hebrews. We think this is on purpose. And then you have a double-tongued man who comes in and with his slick silver tongue, he tells one party this and he tells another party that. Is that going to foster the kind of unity that this church body needs for the long term? No. So a man must not be double-tongued, not devious in his speech. Paul says he's not, he cannot be addicted to much wine. Paul is not saying that a man must totally abstain. That's not, that's not the qualification for any Christian, much less for an officer but he cannot be controlled by a substance that impairs his mind. He cannot be given to those things, addicted to it. He's not greedy for dishonest gain. I love the old King James, filthy lucre. You don't have to know what lucre is to know it's not good. But filthy lucre, not greedy for dishonest gain. Again, this doesn't mean that the man cannot be a man of means. It cannot mean that the guy doesn't work hard and seek to improve his own estate. In fact, that's required of every Christian. But it means he's not, he's not driven by this. He's not willing to cut corners, whether it's his taxes or his contracts or his customers or his church. He's not driven by dishonest gain. Then we're told, let them first be tested. Let them first be tested. What is necessary here, and with elders, Paul gives the qualification, they're not a recent convert. I mean, we, we've all seen men who have, you know, there there's seems to be a reformation, kind of the New Year's resolution phenomenon. That first month of January, everything's going great. Then February or March and April, we kind of trail off. Have we had sufficient opportunity as a church to see a man's life, to see his character, and to see that this is consistent over time? He doesn't run hot and cold. He's actually been tested. He's been refined. He's got some, actually some life experience. We're not, we're not appointing a man to the office of deacon in the hope that he might grow into these things. We're saying, no, we've already been able to observe this and to see a steady track record, not a perfect track record, a steady track record. And in all these things, Paul says he must be blameless. Now, again, here's one of those opportunities to press these qualifications in such a wooden way that no ordinary man would ever qualify. Who, uh, 
Raise your hand. Who, who's willing to say, I'm blameless in everything? Men, don't try that at home. Please don't try that at home. You will hurt yourself. You will get hurt. And no jury will convict her. No, so we, we don't say in an absolute sense, but what does Paul mean? The, the, the better translation is probably above reproach or unaccused, unaccusable. And think about the Old Testament standard that, that the Lord Jesus repeats. that there, there must be, in order to convict someone, there must be testimony from two or more witnesses. There must be evidence. So what is this saying? That with respect to a character, there's not a charge that will really hold up. There's not a charge that's going to hold up. This man really is a drunkard. Or this man really is dishonest with respect to his pursuit of gain. That this man is not sober-minded. Could, could such a charge hold the burden, hold the weight of multiple evidence or multiple witnesses and biblical evidence? That's what Paul means. He doesn't mean that he's absolutely unassailable in anything he's ever said or done. We would be, our shelves would be empty when it came to officers in the church if that were the standard, right? And see, again, we can err on either side. We can ignore or minimize the biblical commandments and say, well, they just don't really mean anything. It's all, it's, it's just whoever we like. It's whoever's been really successful in business. It's whoever is, you know, really going to help make a name for the church. That's who we want as deacons. And we can err on the other side and make the bar so high that only a very rare man could ever pass muster. So that's her character. And again, that character has to be understood in light of why were the deacons chosen to begin with? What were they called upon by the church to do? And secondly, let's think about the content of their faith. Look what Paul says. We find this in verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let's hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. See, these are men whose faith is not merely a subjective experience. These are men who are not simply uh, uh, subjectively thinking about, well, I believe in God in a generic sense, or I believe in a concept of faith. No, this speaks to an objective content and practical expression of their belief. And we know this because we get down to verse 16. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is, you see the same phrase, the mystery. Now, what does that word mean? Does it mean that this man is someone who's able to unlock the mysteries of the world? He knows what's in Area 51? Or other such mysteries? No, mystery in, in Pauline language is something that was previously veiled under the Old Covenant. But now, in the Lord Jesus Christ, those things have been made known. It's, it's like the unveiling of a statue, where they pull the ceremonial cloth off, and there is this mystery that was once veiled, it's now exposed, it's now open. And Paul goes on to say, here's the mystery that we confess, he Christ Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You know what Paul's doing here? He's quoting from an early confession of faith. This is something the church confessed to be true. And Paul says this mystery, a deacon must hold with a clear conscience, he must objectively have a content in his faith. 
There, he must have uh, evidence, first of all, of true and saving faith, that he actually knows Christ, and there's evidence in his life that that's true. But also, are there practical, observable uh, measures of conformity in his life, in his home, to the Word of God? Can we look at a man's life and say, I see the efforts he's making to conform himself to the Word of God. I see that the faith that he, that he possesses is not just theoretical. It's actual. It's practical. It has direct and immediate implications. He recognizes the authority of God's Word brought to bear on his life, and he submits himself to that. And there's an objective content in their faith. Paul says, it's, he uses a definite article, the mystery of the faith. Paul's not looking at, at, a, at a squishy feeling He's looking at an objective content. What does this man believe? We have applied this in a very particular way at GFBC Conroe. If you read through our, our Constitution and bylaws, you will see that every officer in the Church of, of Jesus Christ, every pastor, every deacon, has to subscribe fully to our statement of faith, our confession of faith, which is a document written in 1677, the second London a confession of faith, often referred to as a 1689, because that's when it was the, the, the veil of persecution lifted and they were able to publish it publicly. But a man needs to hold fast to that and say, yes, I can with a clear conscience submit myself to this summary of what the Christian faith is. Paul gives a very brief summary in Second or First Timothy 3.16, and, and our fathers in the faith have expanded upon that, taking the whole counsel of God's word and saying, this is what we believe it teaches. And so we ask all of our deacons to be willing to say, yes, I believe that. And you'll see, in fact, in, our, in the ordination vows that you will witness here in just a little while, J. Michael will be asked, as all of our deacons are, if at any time in the future you depart from this and can no longer submit in clear conscience to these doctrines, you have a moral duty to make that known to the elders very serious what a man believes. And thirdly, with respect to the question of who, who should be nominated, who should be affirmed, who should be ordained to the office of deacon, men who display the character described here in the text, men who have the, the, the content of their faith described here in the text, but also men who have certain skills. Now, it's not a long, exhaustive list. In fact, we might be surprised to think, when we think about all the particular needs that go on in a church, we might come up with our own list of skills that might be necessary. Well, he's got to be a plumber, licensed plumber, that's for sure. Uh, a master carpenter, that would be good. But that's not what we find, is it? What are the skills that are listed here? Look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. The only skill that the Scripture is concerned about is a man's ability to manage his own home. And Paul asked the question rhetorically with respect to pastors. If a man cannot manage his own home, how can he manage the household of God, which is an extended family? And it makes logical sense, doesn't it? If in the smaller things, a man it can't be successful or hasn't been able to find his footing, 
how do we expect him to do well on a larger scale? So it's eminently practical, but it's also very helpful. First of all, Paul deals with wives. And, and you might find some translations in verse 11. It says, their wives. Uh, you might also find translations say, their women or women in general. The term in, in the Greek, the term can be translated, depending on its context, wife or woman. Wives or women. And the context demands uh, an interpretation. Some see this as a justification for deaconesses, for female deacons. I think the context tells us very clearly that that's not what Paul says. Paul's talking about the wives of deacons. Now, their wives are not being called to office. However, do you have to stretch your imagination very far to realize that a wife, no matter how qualified a man might be, that a wife could really undermine that and hinder his work of building unity within a church? And notice exactly what Paul says in that area. Wives, likewise, must be dignified. It's the exact same term he says about the men. I mean, she has to be a serious-minded woman. She's not, in the older language, she's not a silly woman. She's not a frivolous woman. doesn't mean she never has a good time. doesn't mean she doesn't let her hair down and laugh and enjoy her children and her family and her friends. and all. He's saying, is her life characterized with a certain level of sobriety, of seriousness, to recognize we're not, we don't live on a playground. We live on a battlefield. But also, it says, their wives must be dignified, not slanderers. Here's another one of those words that you don't have to be a, you don't have to speak Greek. The word is diabolos. Again, I, I don't have to explain. That's not a good word. Not diabolos. Not a slanderer. Not a talebearer. Not a gossip. And again, how how much harm is done within a, a tight knit community of faith with one loose tongue, and particularly in the context of a family. In, in need, and, and her husband has gone in to help them, and maybe he's asked for, his, for counsel for his wife, maybe he's confided in her in some way, and then she shares intimate details with someone else. You can imagine the harm that would, that would come in those kinds of situations. So she a woman who's discreet, and again, this, this, is, this is under the heading of his skill. Is a husband able to lead his wife in such a way that she is not Diopolos, that she is sober-minded, that she's serious, that she is faithful in all things. We also see in in the first part of verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. This speaks of his fidelity in marriage. Literally the phrase is, is he a one-woman man? And there's all kinds of controversy sometimes about, well, is this including or excluding men who've been divorced or remarried? That's not even Paul's point. Again, he's thinking about the skill. Is a man able to manage his home, cause his marriage to flourish and prosper? Is he willing to invest the necessary time and resources into his marriage in such a way that it does grow and prosper and can be a good and helpful example to those around him? And then we see another, the skill in the second half of verse 12, managing their children and their own households well. Is a man able to keep his children in subjection? Are his children known as being rebellious, unruly, unsubmissive, unwilling even to hear their father or their mother's instruction? 
those things are testimony to a, to a man's skill. Can he be a peacemaker in his own home? Can, can he, by the art of teaching and persuasion, convince his teenage son or his teenage daughter that this is, this is the right way to go? If he can't do that, if he can't do it consistently, how is he going to do that on a larger scale? So those are the skills that Paul puts before us. Again, the standard is not perfection. When Paul says blameless in these matters, it's not that he's never stubbed his toe. It's not that his, that his children have never made a, a rebellious comment or a rebellious activity. It's not that his wife is perfect. What's the pattern? What's the trajectory? So who should be chosen to serve? Who is biblically qualified? Sometimes we can, we can act like the recruiters, the army recruiters during World War II. They were so desperate for soldiers that unless you had a specific disease or a physical infirmity, you were welcomed in. And, and that's not the way that we ought to look at the diaconate. We don't look at this in terms of who is minimally qualified. But nor should we look at who is perfect in every way. We need to ask the question, who is best able to fulfill the purpose and function of the diaconate? Who, who best meets the needs of the church in these particular areas? And you know what? That might change. That's not a hard and fixed rule. We noticed um, two weeks ago that the complaint in Acts chapter 6 arises from Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews. And it arose against the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so the apostles told the entire congregation, gathered everyone together and said, appoint from yourselves seven men. And all seven names are Greek names. I think implying two things. One, the Hebrews were willing to set aside their own desires, their own pursuit of glory, and say, we will defer to our, our Hellenistic brothers to make sure that the needs of their widows are met. But secondly, I think the apostles wisely said, you who are bringing a problem ought to be the ones who are first to help solve it. So there's a wisdom there as well. You have the immediate context, you have the immediate understanding of what's happening in these homes and what the immediate needs are. It is your widows being neglected. Step up and serve the Church of Christ in this area so that that doesn't become a matter of schism or hindrance to the ministry of the church. So we ask, who is able to fulfill the purpose of a diaconate? Again, during from one church to another, that those definitions may vary a little bit. One church may say, we've got these particular needs, we need these kinds of men. Another church may say, we have a slightly different need. And, 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 a, and a different kind of man might be more suited for that job, provided he meets these qualifications of character and belief and skill. But it also may change even during the life of a church. As, as a church, we've, we've existed as a church, Next uh, March will be 13 years. But over the, the life of 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 years of a church, don't you think the needs of that church might change? And, and there might be a necessity of more men to be, to be serving as deacons. There might be a need for particular skills to be brought to bear. So we need to ask as a congregation, who is the wisest nomination for the body to make in our particular place and time that meet the standards of the Scriptures? 
Let's look in the last place at the promise. There's a promise here that Paul gives in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's there's a wonderful promise here that those who serve well will gain a good standing for themselves. These are men who already, by, by nature of their qualifications, must have a good reputation. But that reputation is only grown and enhanced as they serve faithfully. That's a promise given to, to not only officers, but anybody who serves faithfully in the church. You gain the right kind of esteem, of esteem and recognition from your brothers and sisters. That's not a wrong thing. That's a healthy thing. But there's another aspect of the promise that I think is even bigger than that. Also great confidence, or literally great boldness, in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And, and some of you may not fully understand what Paul means by the faith. And I don't want to assume that. The faith here, he says, it's the faith that is in Jesus Christ. This is not an objective or a subjective appeal uh, or an ambiguous appeal to experience or intuition or gut feelings or a vague sense of, of even transcendent principles. See, our, our culture, our, our popular media is just replete with these ideas of, of faith. But faith in what? I mean, you hear a celebrity, you hear an athlete, well, I just, I just have faith. In what? Faith must have an object. Faith is not a, a substance. Faith is not a, a, an ambiguous resource that you carry in a bottle somewhere. Faith must have an object. Faith in what? Or faith in whom? I'm not a prophet, but I think it's very clear to me that it seems as if the Lord has, is, is shaking our confidence, our faith, in our institutions, in the things that our culture has relied upon in the West. He seems to be shaking the very foundations of that so that we ought to look upwards, look to heaven and say, where is our, where is our faith rested? Where is our faith fulfilled? Is it faith in ourself? Is it faith in our, in our, in our, our fellow brothers and sisters, faith in humanity? It's none of those things. Paul says that a man who serves well as a deacon will gain a good standing, but also a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks here of confidence in an objective faith, an objective person, a historical person. Jesus Christ, who, who isn't a concept. He isn't just a, a good teacher or, or a guru or a prophet, he is the Son of God who took on human flesh. God can, in fact, be reconciled to sinful men through the Lord Jesus Christ and through him alone. The faith that Paul teaches, speaks about here is the faith that teaches that Jesus Christ is an active God. He is an active Lord. He is actively ministering to his church. He's not left his church, his own brothers and sisters, alone and to her own devices. He's not left his church without his own power, his wisdom and his ruling and, and governing hand. So this promise is here to all who will believe it. The promise is, is available to all. We get, remember that the ought and the must? 
This ought to be embraced by every man, by every woman, by every child, that Christ Jesus has come into the world. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. And we could add to that, he's promised to return. There is a grabbing hold of this faith that, that ought to be taken by every person. But then at the same time, we see that God has appointed, God the Father from all of eternity has appointed for Jesus to be handed over to sinful men, to be crucified as the sinless, spotless, righteous, perfect Lamb of God, to bear the weight of all of the sin of all who would believe in him. so that those sins could be pardoned. The very human sinful condition could be cleansed. And that we could be reconciled to God. Paul says in Colossians, we could be transferred. There's a redemptive transaction. We could be purchased, taken out of the kingdom of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of God's own Son. This faith that Paul talks about teaches that the man, that that the woman who's born, born at enmity with God, can be born again in Christ by his spirit and have sin no longer ruling and governing them. So that's a promise generally offered to all who ought to believe this. But there's a promise here to the, to the one who must believe it, to serve as a deacon. But there's a particular promise that comes with that. The promise here is is to those who serve well as deacons with with respect to the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This promise is that those who serve well will will gain a great confidence, a great boldness in this faith. Imagine that this is is a, a promise that parallels our Lord's teaching in Matthew 20. His disciples had, had often bickered about who would be the greatest, and, and he says to them that the rulers of the Gentiles, unbelievers, think this way, and, and their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, and it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So part of this promise is that God will fulfill what he already said through the Lord Jesus Christ, that those who would desire to be great will first become servants, and that through that very means, they they will experience their faith in a way that's much deeper and richer than they'd done before. But also, there's a further implication to the promise. Deacons will have opportunity by way of their office to enter into the sorrows and the sufferings and the joys and jubilations of God's people. As it were, deacons will have a front row seat to difficulties within families, within the church, difficulties within the church itself that other members may not see. And by being a witness to that, by having that front row seat, they will begin to see more and more the mysterious, the miraculous power of God brought to bear on situations that they thought, there's no solution for this. 
is they'd gathered together amongst themselves as deacons and prayed for the physical necessities of the church, as they've prayed for this family who's lost a child, as they've prayed for a family who's lost a loved one, as they've prayed for this brother who's lost his job, as they've prayed for the physical needs of our families. And they see God move. They see God work. They see marriages restored. They see financial problems solved. They see hardships endured. They see conflicts healed, relationships restored. They, have, they see those who've had their faith renewed who once doubted. The, these men will have opportunity to see dear saints holding fast to the very end of their lives. And they'll see that up close. They will see saints holding fast during man, all manners of physical affliction and sickness. And Paul says that those who serve well in that capacity will have a greater boldness in their faith. Their lips will be loosed in a way that others may not see, may not understand, because I've been there. I've seen the promises of God come true. I've prayed for this family, and I think there was no way that this problem was going to ever work itself out. And God worked. God softened the heart. God provided in a way that we didn't expect. God healed and restored in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. And deacons will have the privilege of seeing those things up close. So as we think about the qualifications of deacons as as applying uh, to every member of the church, we also ought to think of the promise here, applying to every member, every Christian. But But it ought to apply to deacons in a particular way. As they have occasion to exercise their gifts within the body of Christ. As they have the opportunity to assist with and promote the teaching and preaching and praying ministry of the church. As they have opportunities to to serve the physical needs of the congregation. As they have the opportunity to, 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 to be peacemakers within the body of Christ. God has promised that their faith will be increased. See, every one of us has a duty to study the scriptures to consider prayerfully how God has gifted us to serve in his church. So there's an oughtness of service that applies to everyone, right? If you're a member of a church, you're you're not exempt. No one has a no-service clause in their church membership. It doesn't exist. So we have a duty to support, uh, to pray for, uh, to encourage those who serve as officers in the church, whether deacons or elders. We all have, should share the common goal of seeing the gospel of God proclaimed in the church of Jesus Christ and to see the, the, the church growing, not just numerically, but flourishing in the quality of our fellowship together and the quality of our service to the Lord. Deacons serve as managers in the household of God. We, we, haven't, we haven't ordained or hired grunt workers. That's not the way we ought to think about deacons. And I mentioned the illustration last week. We shouldn't think about it as if we all got on a cruise ship together and then decided we need to select some men among us who can keep our lemonade glasses full and fresh towels coming. That's not the way we think about deacons. We haven't appointed some to do the work so that we can sit idly by. Deacons sought to coordinate, they facilitate, they they orchestrate, but they should not be viewed as the sole laborers among us. Everyone ought to be engaged in, in the labors of the church. 
Deacons ought to be viewed as a gift. Do we think of them this way? As, as we observe an ordination here in just a few moments, do we think of deacons as a gift? That our, our loving Father, through the authority of His Son, working in and through His church, has raised up men as a gift among us, to be a blessing to us. These men should be held in high esteem. And each of us should be eager to help them and pray for them as they execute the duties of their office. So let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we we thank you and we praise you for the wisdom that you've given to us through your word. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and and, and hearts that are eager uh, to submit ourselves to this authority. As we've read your word and as we've heard it preached, we have not heard merely the, the voice of a man, but the very words of Christ. Will you give us minds that, that are humble, who will confess our own weakness and our own dependence upon your wisdom and not our own? Father, I pray that you will use these men, or Stephen and Kyle and J. Michael, to be a, a tremendous blessing to this church body and that the body of Christ would be a a constant encouragement to them. We pray that you cause us to have this mind among ourselves that was first in Christ Jesus who gave himself up for the sake of his brothers. We ask this in his name. Amen.